Well, for the next couple of weeks, certainly, our broad region, that of Southeast Asia, will be the visible venue for the world's power plays of the moment. Three big meetings will allow global leaders to talk face-to-face. ASEAN is currently underway in Cambodia, and this coming week, G20 leaders from the top global economies will meet in Bali because Indonesia has the rotating presidency, and then APEC will follow in Thailand. Notably, and perhaps thankfully for Indonesia's President Joko Widodo, Russia's President Vladimir Putin won't be among the guests. His choice, apparently. US President Joe Biden and China's President Xi Jinping will meet, and it looks increasingly likely he'll also meet our Prime Minister Albanese, which is a significant development. There's a lot at stake for wider power relations and regional and international order, but especially for President Widodo, who hasn't really shown much interest thus far in external affairs during his reign. For a preview of the G20 and implications of this summit season, I'm delighted to welcome back a very seasoned observer of Indonesia, Professor Dewi Fortuna Anwar from Jakarta's Research Centre for Politics. Hello there, Dewi. Hello, uh, Geraldine. Great. Research Centre Politics or National Research and Innovation Agency. You need to say it fully. Oh, good. Okay. Sorry, that's quite a mouthful. And uh, I also want to welcome Susanna Patton, who's the Director of the Southeast Asia Program at the Lowy Institute. Hello, Susanna. Hi, Geraldine. Now, Dewi, um, there's been a big focus on the global politics of this meeting, but really the G20, um, in theory, is supposed to have an economic fo- focus. From where you sit, will this be the sort of thing Thing that uh, President Wododo will really tackle happily? Well, that's the whole point. And, you know, the, the uh, Indonesian government, the, the president, the foreign minister and the finance minister have uh, reiterated uh, over and over again, you know, that Indonesia's presidency of G20 during these times of very difficult geopolitical challenges, particularly with the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, should not be derailed from its original focus, which is in the economic arena you know it was g20 was created to deal with the financial crisis of 2007 2008 and now you know after after the world has faced tremendous challenges uh, with the pandemic and the, we are, we have not really the economy has not really fully recovered we are now again faced with tremendous challenges with the uh, with the rivalry between us and china and now uh, with russian invasion uh, mm. which has really pit russia and some of Russia's good friends uh, against the G7 countries led by the United States. But even dis- despite that, you know, uh, Indonesia has again uh, stated that focus of G20 should be economic and that, uh, you know, Indonesia is focused on three priorities, you know, energy transition, digital transformation, and of course, you know, the, uh, the creation of a more equitable global health architecture. Yes. He's, and that, you know, we should not lose sight of that focus. No. Well, of course, that's the aim, but I wonder if that'll hold. I mean, he did tell um, the Financial Times journalist Gideon Rackman, we will not be a pawn in a new Cold War. Will we hear that, do you think, or that'll all be subterranean at uh, the G20? So Indonesia stood and has continued to stand on international laws, on principles. But at the same time, Indonesia has refrained from joining uh, a country sanctioning Russia. Uh, Indonesia sees itself as a bridge builder. You know, Indonesia has reached out to both Moscow and, and Kiev. You know, as you know, the President Joko Dodo is probably, you know, the only world leader, uh, certainly the only one from Asia, who has 
visited both Kiev and, and Moscow, uh, you know, in, in, in the recent, recent months. And President uh, Zelensky to, is actually going to be beamed in, isn't he, in a Zoom? Yeah, he's, yes, he's going to address yeah, the and, Yeah, so, so, so no, uh, Indonesia has invited President Putin despite pressure from uh, a lot of countries, including uh, Australia, you know, that Indonesia as president of the G20 this year should not include Russia. But, he, uh, but Australia has, supported that. As I understand, that was one of the very uh, first. In, uh, yeah, Indonesia, yeah. yeah in, uh, Australia then supported it, you know, but but in the beginning there were murmurs that uh, led us a lot of unhappiness, you know, there was uh, talks about uh, the G7 probably would boycott, for example, mm. G20 if Putin were to come. Uh, but Indonesia stood firm saying, you know, that we should not make G20 into arena for geopolitical conflicts because there are other areas, you know, you can debate in the UN Security Council. and, and, and uh, uh, But at the same time, you know, in, Indonesia said, you know, G20 is a, a multilateral forum where we need to uh, talk about serious global issues which would need, you know, all the involvement uh, of all of the members. Uh, but at the same time, uh, also aware, you know, that Indonesia should not only be seen to be reaching out or to include Russia, but also to show its sympathy uh, to, to Ukraine and invited the Ukrainian president, you know, uh, mm. to participate as a, as a guest of the host. And as, as I said, you know, Jokowi acted as an as uh, and also an envoy for the UN Secretary General to go to Kiev and and, and Moscow to talk about, you know, to de- uh, negotiate that Black Sea's grain uh, uh, initiative, allowing. Mm. The, the the you know allowing the shipments of Ukraine grains again uh, that has been blockaded by by Russia and recently uh, Jokowi again you know President Jokowi called again to uh, President Putin after he said that you know he would walk out from that uh, grain initiative that he should continue. Right. Let me go to Susanna. What do you think from uh, sitting here looking in Australia, Susanna? What do you think? What key strands will emerge about, uh, particularly about things, I suppose, like the relationship between US and China? And you've served in uh, on post in both Southeast Asia and back in Canberra. What do you think? Well, I think these summits are coming at a really fascinating time because in many ways, these summits are the legacy of post-Cold War institution building, where the focus was very much on building out these inclusive regional institutions. So meetings like the East Asia Summit and APEC, Uh, elevating the G20 to leaders level were very much from a time when it was hoped that there would be genuine multilateral cooperation between the world's most important countries and between countries in the Indo-Pacific region. And now we find ourselves in a situation where that just seems much less likely than it once did. And in fact, uh, Gideon Rackman, who you mentioned before, described the G20 as the the first global summit of the second Cold War. And I'm not sure if I would go that far, but I think he certainly captures the kind of moment that we're in where these institutions are changing. But one of the real benefits that I think is still so important from these meetings, especially from Australia's perspective, is the opportunity to have those bilateral meetings in the margins, because that's something that's really been lacking over the past two years. It's been three years since Asia had a summit season like this, because the 
last two years, the summits have all been held online and you just don't get those same opportunities for dialogue and engagement. And so the fact that the US president and China's leader will be meeting, I think is something that many regional countries in particular really welcome because they worry that a lack of strategic trust, a lack of communication between those two countries could lead to a very dangerous situation in which uh, conflict becomes more likely. Mm. Uh, and, you know, the, the type of person whom uh, Jokowi is, who hasn't been overtly fascinated, you know, like someone like Macron, for instance, in playing this role. I wonder how you assess him. I'll go back to Dewey in a moment about this. But uh, it's interesting to, to think of him playing this role at this, at this really quite crucial time. Yeah, and I think in many ways, some of what Wododo has said about both the Russia's invasion of Ukraine, although that's not necessarily the way that Indonesia describes the situation there, but um, but what Wododo has said about the, the situation in Ukraine, as well as the importance of, of multilateralism more generally, I think very much reflects prevailing attitudes in what you could call the the global south so the countries who are not part of a of a pro us camp or a pro china camp mm. but who very much are focused on the secondary impacts of crisis like the one in ukraine very much focus on the impact domestically of a rising food and energy prices on the impact of inflation um, and so i think in many ways it's 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 a very interesting time to see a leader like Widodo, who, as you say, is not overtly focused on the on the geopolitics, but is engaged with crises that, that of course, have their origin in geopolitics. I mean, it's interesting, uh, looking at our own Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, there was quite an interesting piece by uh, John McCarthy and Tony Milner, both very seasoned, again, observers of, um, uh, of, of diplomacy, that, in fact, he has a style that you could argue, just a personal temperamental style, which is much more akin to an Asian style, you know, rather low key, not bombastic, um, not seeking to have the last word, you know, you can go on. That could be quite a successful manner to bring um, by an, an Australian leader to Southeast Asia. Do you see it like that? I think that's certainly possible. I think we already saw a little bit of that on display when Albanese made his visit to Indonesia, the bilateral visit in June, and we saw those images of the two leaders riding on the, the bamboo bicycles. I think it was quite clear from that visit that Albanese had a had a nice touch, um, and I think that's, that's something that will definitely be welcomed by regional countries, although this is his first big summit mm. season, so this is his chance to make a first impression on, on many countries who he won't actually have had the opportunity to have met yet. Uh, Dewey, um, the bilaterals at the G20, I wonder uh, how important you think they're going to be. And again, is this something Indonesia's looking forward to, being the host for something like this? And, you know, some of those internal um, priorities that uh, Susanna mentioned, I, mean, I was even thinking of moving the capital to Borneo, such a huge undertaking. You know, is this the sort of thing that the Indonesians will care about? Well, I think bilaterals will be very important. There's always a very uh, significant dividends of, of meetings when, when uh, there are bilateral tensions which make it difficult for leaders from certain countries to meet together. Uh, attending multilateral forums uh, would enable them, you know, to get together just, uh, on the sideline. That has... Uh, been the case, for example, during the East Asia Summit, 
that facilitated the normalization, for example, of relations between China and Japan at one at one point. Mm. So uh, we could certainly hope that there will be important bilateral meetings, which will be, you know, the one that will be watched out the most will be the you know the meeting between Biden and, and Xi Jinping. So clearly, uh, with with the offline meetings now possible, you know, with direct meetings possible, uh, getting the uh, in-person touch is, is very important. And there's nothing can replace the, the, the face-to-face meeting where uh, you can gauge the, the body language, uh, the, the gestures, and, uh, and, and really feel that uh, sometimes chemistry can work mm. despite very difficult issues. Yes, like the relationship between China and the US and that, that that's so, so much sort of so strongly articulated, which is certainly not the Javan, Javanese way. Um, so again, I'm wondering, you know, Jokowi's role in that, um, particularly given this sort of balancing act, very interesting balancing act that Indonesia plays vis-a-vis China and the own internal Chinese issues, the need for Chinese capital. I mean, how do you see all that playing out from an Indonesian perspective? Well, Indonesia, you know, our, our foreign policy doctrine is free and active foreign policy, independent. You know, so we don't, we do not allow Indonesia's foreign policy to be dictated by uh, an external power that is bigger than us. Uh, that's why Indonesia has always been non-aligned and and active. And active means that you know you should be active, particularly in promoting cooperation, global cooperation, global peace. So mm-hmm. Indonesia is very fond of it, saying you know it's now it is playing a middle power diplomacy, uh, acting as a bridge builder, as facilitator, as a mediator mm-hmm. uh, wherever possible. So uh, Indonesia will welcome very much the the forum that's it's it's hosting could be used by by other leaders uh, to meet up and 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 pursue their own uh, different uh, activities. Mm. Jokowi uh, is very much more interested in the details, in the deliverables. Uh, he's not terribly interested in just multilateralism for the multilateralism sake, uh, you know, for, for more the philosophical dimension of it. You know, he's, that's why in the past he's not that interested in multilateralism, in the wider one. So he's never been to the UN. too theoretical. Yeah, yeah. yeah but the, the only multilateralism that's the attendance is how uh, you know, the ASEAN mechanisms and APEC and the G20. The rest, he, he has tended, you know, to, to sideline. Uh, and for the US and China, both are important in their own right. Indonesia does not get close to the United States because of fear of China and vice versa. Indonesia does not develop relations with China as a policy aim against the United States. That is not the case because each country is important in its own right. For the moment, uh, there seems to be this you know, hypothesis or the reality that uh, you work together with China for the economy, for prosperity, and then you work together with the United States for security. Uh, ideally, you know, we like to have both prosperity and security with China and the United States. So we would like to develop close economic relations with China, but at the same time, you know, also not to be too concerned about security threats from China. So, so, uh, so that's what Australia theoretically that, wants, but we don't seem to be pulling it off. At the yeah, moment. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but yeah, but at the moment, what is the reality is that you know, Indonesia, China has become one of Indonesia's largest uh, trading partners. In fact, you know, the largest uh, trading partner at the moment, and also is very important uh, investor as well. The US, which used to be, uh, uh, you know, the uh, very important market has gone down a bit, but it is also catching up. And and the, the US, because of constant criticisms about its lack of uh, economic engagement in recent years, has also stepped up its game. 
But as you know, they are uh, Indonesia and the U.S. have carried out this bilateral military exercises for years. And uh, last year, uh, the Gruda Shield exercise uh, exercise was quite big. But this year, uh, it has enlarged that exercise to include 14 countries. All of the court countries have participated in in this uh, super Gruda countries. Shield as well. Yeah, but say say the Japanese yeah, are far yeah. much, much tougher minded. You know, they've become exceptionally yeah. good diplomats. They're, they're they're running a different race, it would seem, to Indonesia at the moment in terms of their position internationally because they live a lot closer to China, of course. Yes, uh, but at the same time, you know, uh, they can't ignore the uh, economic dimensions. At the end of the day, everybody wants to trade with China. Look, let me ask Susanna, uh, can I just come to Susanna? How significant do you think is Labor's promise to invest an extra $470 million in aid in the region and they're going to work with Jakarta to develop a, a, a quote, deliver a, quote, $200 million climate and infrastructure partnership? I mean, what are his main aims and aspirations, do you think, in this suite of summits? Look, I think the fact that the new government has committed to some new aid spending in Southeast Asia and with Indonesia in particular is welcome because that had really declined a lot as a result of budget cuts under under the previous government. So that is important. But I think there are other things that are even more important. So I think the fact that we now have a trade agreement with Indonesia, we're now seeing some real business interest by significant Australian companies in investing in Indonesia. I think that kind of thing is potentially even more important in terms of what's going to appeal to Indonesia and make Australia be seen as a, as a credible partner. And do you see that, um, will there be a notable change, do you imagine or do you speculate, from a meeting between Albanese and Xi Jinping, which looks like it will happen? I mean, it's a that'd be the first meeting for a, a, a long time. I think that the foreign minister, Wang Yi, has met Penny Wong, but certainly not at this level. That's right. It looks like it will happen. All the signs suggest that it will. But I, I think, you know, the it, it's not the case that Australia would be seeing that meeting as an opportunity to really fundamentally reset relations. You know, the idea is about stabilising and using the opportunity of meeting with China to ask for the trade restrictions which continue to be imposed on Australia to be lifted because that's something where the ball is, is very much in, in China's court. Mm. Uh, look, maybe I should ask you, Dewey, um, as we draw this to a close, many Australians, of course, many, many Australians are very familiar with Bali, where the G20 will take place. How has the island transformed in this last three years? As Susanna was saying, that we, you know, we've all been basically sort of um, separated from each other because of COVID. Uh, in terms of welcoming these international delegations, is it something that uh, Bali and Indonesia is looking forward to, or is it uh, is it a sidebar issue for that huge entity uh, with all its different islands and uh, peoples in Indonesia? Well, uh, G20 is big news in Indonesia. Uh, the government has really tried to mobilise domestic support. Uh, G20 markers have been put all over the country, so it's not just in Bali throughout the country. So you know there is a strong awareness of the importance of the G20 and the critical role that Indonesia needs to play to ensure that the very polarised world uh, leaders uh, can come together, you know, to agree on very important international decisions. Now, Bali itself, throughout the COVID, it's really suffered. As you know, 
Bali's economy is hugely over-dependent, in fact, mm. on tourism. And the COVID is even worse than during the, uh, after, in the aftermath of the Bali bombing. That also, you know, tourism in Bali also uh, declined sharply. Uh, but that is nowhere near near what happened in two years when there's no domestic tourism, let alone international tourism. Uh, I've, I've been reading uh, very distressed news about people who have work, been working in, in tourist, the tourist industries. You know, they 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 have to sell their properties, uh, you know, just to feed themselves. So for them, you know, the the return of normalcy and particularly while hosting this huge event, uh, it's very very important for invigorating uh, the tourist industry again, and that includes not just not just hotels, but also, you know, uh, food and travel and uh, manufacturing as well, selling souvenirs and, and, and things like that. Uh, the, the Today's National Daily Compass put down, you know, that there are benefits for Indonesia's, the G20, and there's a lot of direct benefits as well as indirect benefits. But people won't like to go to Bali. <laughs> it's a job. But also, you know, the, the area around Nusa Dua, uh, it's really been built up. Uh, with so many uh, five-star hotels uh, or at least four-star on convention centers. So right. uh, in terms of people staying there uh, and securing the area, it's less of a headache and also not disrupting traffic. People in Jakarta would curse the government if we have big events in Jakarta and, and, and then roads block yeah, because even of more, yes, entourage it's, it's, going yeah. in and out. Of, from, from, you know, that, uh, it, it, it will be a disaster. That's what happened right. during APEC when uh, APEC was mm. summit was in Bogor and the government gave holiday day off to everyone mm. <laughs> in the, the greater Jakarta and Bogor area right? <laughs> to ease the traffic. Just to yeah. ease the traffic. Yeah, well, I haven't, yeah, I know. Yeah. All right. Well, look, David Fortuna Anwar, thank you very much indeed for joining us today from, uh, from Jakarta and uh, thank you to you, Susanna Patton. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Uh, Professor Dewi Fortuna Amwa from Jakarta's Research Centre for Politics at the National Research Innovation Agency. I've said it all. <laughs> Susanna Patton uh, from the Southeast Asia Program at the Lowy Institute. And that really will be very interesting to watch over the next little while. Stream any ABC radio station live and on the go. Discover new podcasts, music and audiobooks, all free on the ABC Listen app.